Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Erin Palmer, speech-language pathologist and mum to a child with DLD. Erin provides her unique insight into life between the home and clinic. Welcome to this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm so excited to be joined by the wonderful Erin Palmer, who I feel like I've known forever, but it really probably hasn't been forever, Erin. Welcome to the Talking DLD podcast. Thank you. It's my first podcast ever. It's so exciting. I feel like um, we can jump straight in and say, tell us a bit about, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your connection to developmental language disorder? Sure. Um, So I have been a speech and language therapist um, for a number of years. Um, I graduated in 2006 and then I became a mom in 2012. I have three girls. They were born in 2012, 2014 and 2016. Um, and my middle girl um, went on to be um, diagnosed with DLD. But lots of lived experience. And I feel like um, you wouldn't be able to tell from Erin's accent that Erin is based in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Canadian originally. Um, and I did my training in the States. And then I've worked in um, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. So she's been around. She's got a lot of experience, guys. Um, and it's through your work as not just a clinician, but a raising awareness of developmental language disorder or rattled ambassador um, that we first connected. And I would think that, Erin, you might have been probably the first person to ever do a the DLD project workshops right back in 2020. Yes. And I feel like I started asking you really big questions <laughs> quite early on. Yes, big questions. questions that I probably haven't thought of before (laughs) Erin and I think that that's where um, we connected and I've invited Erin along today because she's in such a wonderful position to share her experience both as a clinician as a speech and language therapist as we call it in New Zealand or a speech pathologist or speech language pathologist depending on where you are in in the world um, as well as being the parent of a child with um, developmental language disorder. So I thought Erin if you don't mind we might jump in with your parental hat straight away and say as a parent of a child with DLD can you tell us a little bit about your journey perhaps part of your diagnostic process and, and, and what that looked like for you and the intervention you've received you know we know there's probably been some ups and downs for your family and we, we'd love if you could share that with our listeners. Yeah. Um, So I have always worked with children um, and I worked in early language for a long time. Um, And so I recognized that my middle girl, um, her language wasn't developing kind of as I really expected it to. And we were really sure of that by about 18 months. But I really fed into um, a false narrative around language development and language difficulties. And Um, I really, really believed that if a child was having difficulty with language, that it was always a delay um, and that with enough input, um, they could reach kind of typical skill. Um, And so I just engaged in all of the early language strategies um, and they didn't really work the way I expected them to. 
she had difficulty with word learning um, and once we kind of got single words even when we got more than 50 and you know that's the magical number when kids just start putting putting words together um we didn't we didn't get word combinations um and at that point in time I was kind of going in with my colorful semantics cards and, and really visually showing her how words went together to form sentences um, and when we started getting word combinations, even though we were doing the colorful semantics and showing her how words went together, um, everything was out of order. Um, and, and when we kind of kept going with that and kept persevering, things kind of got into the right order, but there were still um, errors with the grammar. And then as we were getting closer to school, we realized that she just kind of had no phonological awareness skills at all. So it was kind of always something. Um, and by the time she was four um, and was going for her before school check, the before school check um, lady said, um, do you have any concerns? And he said, you know, actually I do. Um, and, and so we sat on a wait list for about a year and a half. Um, and then we received an assessment with the public system. Um, and that speech and language therapist did um, kind of a really traditional language assessment. And we came out well within the range of typical. And she just kind of said, yeah, you know, there there are some holes there. But overall, she's, she's doing all right. And I, I kind of sat with that for a little while because I thought, can you score that well? And, and I'd been questioning DLD by that point in time. Um, I'd... Um, the rattled committee had been formed and um, I'd kind of seen what you were putting out and I was really really questioning like is this what's happening and I I started by asking therapists that I'd worked with and, and people that I knew really well and I said you know what do you know about what do you know about DLD you know because my understanding had always been if we do the right things then the language will come in. And if the language isn't coming in, either the parents aren't following through with what we've suggested, or there's an underlying um, cognitive disability that just hasn't been diagnosed yet. And that, you know, neither one of those things sat well with me. I thought, here's a kid that can, she's got really, really great physical limitation. Um, she's really, really clever with physical problem solving. Um, and I know that I'm doing all the right things. And I know that I'm doing the things that I'm meant to be doing with consistency and with fidelity and things just are not working the way that they're meant to work. Um, and, and, um, you know, I said, I started out by asking, asking friends and people I was familiar with um, who were in the profession and um, they kind of all had similar thoughts to what I had um, and I wasn't getting anywhere there. Um, so then I asked Meredith from um, the informed SLP and she was she was brilliant. She was really, really generous with her knowledge and her time and really made me feel like it was OK to keep asking um, questions. And um, because I think I think when you're kind of just a clinician and you're not a researcher, um, you can feel like the questions that you might ask are really, really silly you can you it's really intimidating um to ask those questions to people who are really super knowledgeable um but Meredith made me feel like it was okay to, to continue on with that um and it was actually Lisa Archibald on Twitter who I'd I'd kind of said you know I feel like I'm chasing the wind and I don't know I don't know if it's worth pursuing and she said to me think about the amount of input that your child has had and even though she's had all of that input and it's been really, really good input, 
you're still seeing a functional impact. And she said, if there's a functional impact there off of all of that work, then I think that another assessment is worth pursuing. But there again, who, who do you ask to do the assessment when you've already had a failed assessment? Um, and so I kind of asked around um, and uh, we ended up traveling to see a therapist in Christchurch. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for her. Um, she did a lot of kind of um, qualitative assessments. Um, she took the things that we had to say into account and, and she did a language sample and she looked at um, the length and the complexity of um, her oral, the sentences in her oral language. And she said, you know, gosh, I think you're right. I, I think um, that that is what it is. Um, and what's an intimidating place to be in to be doing a language assessment on another language experts um, child. So yeah, super grateful for her because, and even after we got the diagnosis, I would say to people, oh, like, you know, nurses and, and teachers and other specialists coming into the school, I would say, um, um, what do you see with her language? Do you see the weaknesses? And they would say, we just don't see the things that you see. And that feels so gaslighty to be the expert and to see the holes and to have everybody else in your environment say, oh, you know, we, we really don't see that. You know, she's really, really chatty. She's really, really pleasant. And you're like, well, yeah, she is all of those things. She's great. But there's just holes where you don't expect them to be. And it was, there is um, a video on the Rattled site starring a mom named, named Sandra Kaplan. Um, who wrote a book called Rachel's Story, who had such a similar experience, but, you know, 40 years ago, um, where she talked about seeing the need and asking all of the professionals. And, and I remember her saying, you know, oh, surely all these professionals can't be wrong. I, you know, I feel like a neurotic mother. And I think that that is a shared experience among parents of children with, with DLD. Um, it's so there's such a lack of understanding around it that really important people don't see it. Sorry, I'm just catching my breath after hearing all of those things because all of them in a row makes it sound like we have got so much work to do, Erin. Um, we do. <laughs> but what we are hearing from you, though, is that that lack of awareness and lack of understanding is really why we need to keep advocating for these young people, because otherwise, you know, yeah. we feel like we're talking and nobody's listening and understanding our perspective, which is so isolating, so yeah. hard. And um, it's and so, so important to listen to functional impact. If a parent mm -hmm. is telling you there's a functional impact, um, just because a standardized test tells you there isn't, mm. there might be some more digging to do. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that part of that um, profile is, you know, difficulties in oral language that are ongoing and having a functional impact. But often, you know, work, a lot of the work I do with clinicians is around, well, how do you measure functional impact and what yes. does that look like? Um, so lots of work that still needs to be done in that sort of diagnostic space. It's so much easier when a child just struggles with a standardized assessment and you feel like all of a sudden I can be really confident with that, but it's quite, um, it, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously you knew a lot of this because of your clinical training and, and your, your skills. So perhaps switching hats now as a speech pathologist or a speech and language therapist, 
what has been your experience with supporting people with DLD? How has your own experience as a, as a parent impacted on your clinical work? Oh, Sean, the, um, the, the process of understanding why she wasn't responding to language techniques um, has had a profound impact on my understanding of language development, my understanding of language difficulties, um, and what to do about that. I really, really fed into that false narrative of being able to reach typical skill with enough of the right input. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, yeah, I had, a, I had a really big life lesson in um, how that is a false narrative. Um, and I think I, I think that a lot of those traditional language techniques that we're taught as therapists are really, really aimed at kids who are having difficulty but are developing language typically. Um, and I think that we have a lot of work to do in the space of understanding language that isn't developing typically and supporting it in a really meaningful way. I think a lot, a lot of those early language techniques um, and, and the rhetoric, rhetoric around them um, are really, really parent blamey and shamey. Um, and it doesn't matter how good your language environment is. Um, we cannot change a child's language trajectory. And I learned that from Courtney Norbury, um, that, that um, language disorder is genetic um, and it, it doesn't matter how much input or how much of the right input. If they're language disordered, they're going to be language disordered and you can change the distribution. You can change, the, you, you can kind of narrow the need, um, but you can't get rid of the disorder. Um, and I always thought that you could. <laughs> um, and, it, I, and I do see DLD as a neurodivergence. And, and I think I think we all need to. And, and um, considering it as a difference or what my grandmother used to call the rich tapestry of life, you know, everybody is yes. different um, and really helping understand what our needs are so we can adjust the environment around us. If we don't yes. know that we have difficulties with communication compared to other people doing the same things that we're doing, then it's really hard to see how we might adjust that and how we might make that more accessible. Yes, I used to. I used to think um, that you treat you treat the disorder, you find out what the disorder is and you treat the disorder. And that's not true. You you treat the functional impact. You you support that person because our goal isn't typical development. Our goal is to support that person to thrive with their neurodivergence. We talk about that a lot in <laughs> in our training and, and the work that we do, isn't it? It's about um how do we make sure that, you know this is a lifelong condition. And, and what we're talking about moving forward is actually acknowledging that the differences are actually just a part of life, you know. Yeah. Tallness all and have shortness strengths and, and challenges. Everybody yeah. does, yeah. I'm sure if we stood next to each other at the um, grocery store, I could probably reach some higher shelves than you could, Erin. <laughs> Not that I think I've stood next to you, but, you know, I, I have my suspicions that I'm probably taller than you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm able to access that environment in a different way to you. But what we are less aware of as a society is how to do that for somebody who has difficulties with communication because yeah. it's invisible and it's not seen. And, um, you know, if we don't know that there's a difference, well, how do we adjust that environment and make it more accessible for them? So 
yeah, absolutely. It's a huge, huge consideration um, when working with young people. And I think like you, I probably had some, uh, whilst I don't have a child with developmental language disorder since having children, my perspective on the work that I do as a clinician has definitely changed. You know, always laugh. I developed the most beautiful home programs and never want, you know, always wondered why the families didn't do the beautiful yes, home programs right. that I had set for them. <laughs> now I'm like, oh my goodness, you guys have gotten here and you're fully dressed and you had breakfast and you, you know, you cleaned your teeth. Wow, that's amazing. Well amazing. done, guys. Yeah. You know, and so, <laughs> you know, thinking about the work that I do as a clinician is actually about going, you know, how do I fit in this dosage and support and, you know, um, home-based supports in a way that's meaningful for the family? And that's my job. You know, it's my job to, as a clinician to say, how can I make this as accessible for you to do at home? Because you're with them so much more than I am. You know, you're with them all the time. Um, and then balancing that with you don't want to therapise them all the time. You know, you want to maintain that relationship as a mom, dad, a parent, you know, grandparent, whoever. So if you're walking around using language stimulation strategies behind them all the time, they're eventually going to get sick of you. Yes. <laughs> um, and, I mean, you're somebody, this is... Um, going slightly off off topic here Erin or slightly into a, a different topic was you know I, I remember you saying to me once you know you knew all the language stimulation strategies and you did those with your child um you know how does it feel sometimes when you know you're doing the right things and it feels like it's not working uh stressful <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I did I used to think that I used to think of training skills as like riding a bike up a hill and that it was hard 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 and once you reached the peak of the pill the hill um that was when the child started using the skill on their own and then I thought it was like a cruisy ride down to the bottom where they thought about it less and you practiced it less um, but it was just coming in more naturally and by the time you got to the bottom of the hill um that had that they got it they didn't have to think about it anymore. yeah, yeah. Um, that's not how things worked for us. Mm. Um, pronouns. And we have um, her and she, um, him and he, and them and they muddled. Um, yeah. And I have recasted pronouns until I am blue in the face. Everybody, everybody in my house knows how to recast a pronoun and it <laughs> has not made a difference. And there have been times where, um, you know, it hasn't just been recasting. We have sat down and done some really structured work around, but it does not seem to matter how much work we do around pronouns. We cannot unmuddle. I'm, I assume that it will happen eventually. And that's kind of the approach that I've taken. Yeah. Because I feel like um, if a skill or a technique or a goal makes you want to tear your hair out, mm. if it's stressful for you, it is stressful for the person that you are supporting and that you just need to need to let it go. In preparing for today's podcast, um, we talked a lot about persistence, um, which, you know, continues on from what you've just said, because, you know, You've been working on pronouns more than anybody else I've, I know in my life, probably. Um, and you said you you said that you know there's a certain amount of being persistent in the face of adversity or even feeling burnt out as a parent. Um, what helps you with your knowledge as a parent, as with your knowledge as a clinician, 
to be resilient when you feel like the future is so unknown and, and parents say this all the time like what does the future hold for my child and I was like well yeah. we don't have a crystal ball so well we don't have a crystal ball for anyone no you know? um yeah so I think I think again just the art of letting things go you can't control the future and you can't control anyone's future um I've learned a lot about neurodiversity and about celebrating neurodiversity and just accepting um, all the different people or all the, all the different ways that that someone can be a person, right? Um, and, and you accept that there are difficulties, but you don't dwell on them. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody, we've said, you know, everybody has a profile of strengths and challenges and yes, she has challenges, but there's some pretty amazing strengths there as well. You know, I talked about her physical limitation, her physical problem solving. This is a child that I put off teaching her how to tie her shoes because I was like, I just, I cannot verbally mediate this child through this task. But when she said, I really want to learn that I only had to show her, I had to physically show her twice. And that was all she needed. From then on, she knew how to type. So there's this skill that I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> um, and she just got it, you know? So I mean, she's got skills that surprise me. Yeah. Um, and, and a term that you taught me, Sean, um, yeah. she's incredibly pro-social. Oh, um, yes. She is joyful and she is in your face. And if she runs out of um, tomato sauce, she is the first person to, to flag down the waiter and say, you know, can I have some more tomato sauce? Yeah. Um, and and the, she's been taught um, self-advocacy in the classroom as well. So if something's hard for her, she will tell her teacher, this this is hard for me. Um, and those are things that I couldn't have done as a child. I didn't have those skills. Mm. Um, so it's so a really leaning into her strengths and celebrating those as well. And we are, we are in a place where we are really well supported. Mm. Um, we have an amazing teacher who understands neurodiversity and understands DLD and celebrates her um and so so having that community of support um is amazing and i think it's being open to possibility is exactly what you're saying i think that too often in the past we've heard a label and in the past that's meant that we've started closing doors you know close 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 doors and say well oh because of that they won't be able to do this and because of that we won't be able to do that but in the neurodiversity community we're seeing people do whatever it is they want to do you know youtuber you know which seems to be every teenager's dream at the moment (laughs) to be a youtuber um or model or actor or um you know I've I know of um somebody who's got developmental language disorder and dyslexia who's very much engaged in their higher education degree now she is busting her backside in order to do what she does and access it but she's attending a higher education degree and and succeeding at what she wants to do without people saying, oh, you oh, well, you couldn't have done that or you couldn't do this. And I often say to parents when they have, you know, the crystal ball moment, oh, what does my the future hold? I said, well, we're in a position now more than ever where we're actually understanding that differences are a good thing. You know, I've got um, one of my high schoolers who told me the other day she's autistic and she said it's actually really quite trendy to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know and she's like and she would have been somebody who in the old days might have been classified as more low you know in yeah. in that sort of tiered model of support now she's like I'm autistic and actually now that people are saying you know that's a good thing I actually feel good about myself and I feel like she's got 
this social group and she goes for outings and all these things that she's like, oh, people told me I wouldn't do these things. And now she's like, I go off and hang out with my friends on weekends and it's amazing. And I feel like that has come through a huge amount of adversity for autistic people and their families and those supporting them. I feel like with DLD being a newer term, let's kind of jump to where they're at. Why do we need to go through (laughs) all the hard work and be like, well, actually we're part of the, uh, you know, these wonderful people are part of the neurodiversity community and and those of us who sit in around them who love them and work with them you know let's let's get to the good part you know the it's actually great to be different and everybody is different and we can make you know choices that are the best thing for us rather than going all of a sudden the label means you cannot do this or you cannot do that um yeah so i'm excited i think that the future can be bright but gosh, we've got a bit of work to do. So yes. I've got to keep on pushing forward. You've talked a bit about what hasn't worked for you um, and the things that you've shared around challenges. But as a parent and as a speech pathologist, what have you found that works at home that is evidence-based? Um, and it's across the board um, because, of course, once I understood what DLD was, I could see it in um, kids that I work with. So... Having never diagnosed a child with DLD in the first decade of my career, mm-hmm. um, I now am, am more comfortable in identifying it. Um, and, and so I do work with a number of kids with DLD as well. Um, but um, I, I stand firm on if you can do nothing else for a child with DLD, um, support them with self-awareness and self-advocacy. Um, lots of kids struggle. They know something's been hard they might not even know it's been hard um you might say oh what did you think about that and they went oh it's a breeze and you went "Mm." did you understand this word did you understand how they phrased that did you understand this figure of speech and they'll go no 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 and you'll go oh you know I reckon that if you didn't understand those things that it might not have been as easy as you thought it was and and so teaching them to say "Mm, didn't understand "Mm, it was hard and then teaching them to say "Mm, as soon as soon as it's a thing, you know, if it's a word you don't understand, if it's a phrase you don't understand, stop, stop me as soon as it's hard. Mm-hmm. And then teaching them, okay, that's the bit was hard. So how how do you have that need met? Um, and, and kind of um, giving them the scripts. I didn't understand that word. Can you rephrase that? Can you slow down? Um, and I think those are skills for life. Um, yeah, so if you, if you can do nothing else for a child with DLD, do those two things. Love that. Sorry, I'm just for those of you, you nobody can see me nodding along, but I, you know, and it's one thing that I talk a lot about in my training is actually making sure that the the first step towards self advocacy is going. I actually don't know, but I also need help, and knowing that help is okay to ask, you know, yeah. um, and and coming up with strategies. I've got one fellow who says to me. If I put my hand up every time I didn't know, I'd have my hand up all day. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> let's put up a strategy in place where he jots down a little thing to check and then either emails or checks in with the teacher at the end and grabs some of that. Or it's going, you know, do they have a, a gesture that they put their thumb out when they need help rather than putting their hand up or, you know, <laughs> what whatever it is that works for them in that context to help them start to go, actually, you know, I need this information I needed adjusted or I need some help gosh it's 
along it's it's from there to where we get the amazing adults with dld standing on stage and talking to politicians around what they need yeah. you know that's you know that that's a big scale advocacy but actually self-advocacy is where it's at yeah yeah um so in terms of then thinking about you know we've talked about language stimulation you, and it sounds like you actually still use language stimulation at home you know, often yeah. we talk about language simulation for littlies, but, yeah. you know, I oh, feel no. like I, yeah. I know I was going to say, I feel like I've been one for a long time who's been saying we use language stimulation across the lifespan. Yeah. Um, but all of the research is for like little zero to five year olds, you know, but it sounds like for your school age child, you still use language stimulation. So like, how does Absolutely. that work? I try my best to build things just into our everyday activities. Mm -hmm. She has DLD. She also she doesn't have a formal diagnosis, um, but I have no doubt in my mind um, that she also has dyslexia. Mm. And so I do um, provide literacy support at school. But as far as language stimulation, we just try to build it into the things that we're doing. Um, I've become really quite skilled at identifying um, kind of academic vocabulary and at being able to, to break it down into words that she can understand. And we just do that as part of how we function as a family. Can you give us a little example of maybe an academic word and how you've sort of broken it down? Oh. <laughs> I have a little, I have, a, I have an idea. So if you're feeling like I've just put you on the spot. I do. I don't think well on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I was just thinking about um, one um, little one where, you know, they came home with all the um, science vocab, you know, they were doing the water cycle. So we were doing evaporation, condensation. And I was like, and just like what you said, I said, do you get, you know, do you, do you, are you good with this? Like, you're okay. And she's like, yep. Awesome. I'm, I'm really good. I was like, oh, so like, tell me in your own words, what condensation is. And she was like, oh, so condensation is when something condenses. And I was like, okay, <laughs> so let's not use the word to define the word or a variation of the word. So what does it mean? And really working through getting them to put their thoughts into words was really quite tricky. So we ended up, you know, looking up the word and then talking about that word and then putting it in a sentence. So, um, you know, we get condensation on the glass in the mornings um, or yeah. condensation on the leaves in the you know, mornings. And sometimes we call it dew or whatever, you know, like we talk about it. But when I explained that to mum, I was like, oh, I do that all the time. I didn't realise that was therapy. And I was like, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. That's like core, you know, working on vocabulary. That's a great, you know, a great way of approaching it but I think that some of those um things we don't acknowledge that what parents are doing is actually really great you know in, in yeah. a number of those instances <laughs> yes, I am nodding I am nodding I agree again I think it all relates back to that false narrative of language environment and and so we automatically assumed that parents weren't doing those things yeah um but lots of them are yeah and I'd argue for our teacher colleagues listening in, I actually think that teachers do a fabulous job often of teaching vocabulary. Yes. I think that teachers are so well trained to look at vocab. And when you explain what they've done for supporting a child with DLD, they're like, oh, I do that. I was like, yeah, you do. And you're doing it really, really well. You know, keep doing it. Keep yeah. doing that. Um, and let's talk about something else like story, story grammar or something that, you know, um, maybe they do need a little bit more support with and we can provide a bit of a framework and structure. But Often what's happening is, you know, there's lots of things, but identifying and saying, keep doing that or do more of that would be really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what we know, right? Is that they need 
more repetitions. They, yeah. they have the ability to learn the things. Mm-hmm. They they just need more exposures and more repetitions. So yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, uh, I think that it's just the amount of time, and the time comes from somewhere. You know, so if you sit down and do that, are you missing out on? I don't know watching a bit of TV together, which is nice too. Or are you and giving up? You know, something like going to the park to do something else. And we understand that, don't we? That's why it's so important that we have a strong team that we're yeah. all on the same page and we're all working on the same goals. You know, if, if we're talking about the things at home that they're talking about in the classroom, that their specialists are talking about, whatever capacity they might see their specialists, you know, if we're all working on the same, the same things, um, mm. then, we're, then we're meeting those goals um, for exposure and repetition. So we've touched on this next question, but I'd love to hear your perspective about any advice for teachers and clinicians supporting a child with DLD yeah and so again I'd I'd go back to building a strong team having really really good communication Mm -hmm. um with each other and really really like I keep talking about it but really really challenging those false narratives there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff out there around screen time and about working parents and about socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. Um, um, but what we know and it's a quote but I can't tell you who it's from um, Mm -hmm. is that children learn language in spite of us not because of us Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that we really really need to hold that um, when we're looking at a child who is having difficulties and because trying to place the blame somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, is just not helpful Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, yeah, cha- challenging those those beliefs that we have around um, language development, having really good com- communications, building a really really strong team, um, mm. is the best advice that I would have. We often think about, um, you know, I, I see people, particularly professionals, trying to explain away communication difficulties, and often one of the things they do is, oh. Well, a language rich environment at home and you know discussing you know oh, yeah. well, did they have a language it does feel a little bit judgmental or a lot judgmental in fact you know because they're assuming that um you know they're not getting x y or z uh, but i'd argue short of growing up in a vacuum or a cave away from everyone else you know, everybody's going to be exposed to some level of language and that level of language yes will vary but you know, assuming we can hear and 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 be able to communicate, you know, and respond to information, children can and should it's be able to learn language. language yeah, yeah, we've actually got this beautiful ability that um, language is uh, something that's innate in human beings. We can't say the same for literacy. Literacy is this sort of secondary learnt skill where we have to recycle all these neurological processes to learn how to read and do maths and all of those things. But language is very innate and core to who we are as human beings. Um, so I feel like instead of trying to explain away problems or put the blame on other people like parents and, and families, you know, really starting to think about, well, maybe it is because they innately have difficulties with acquiring language compared to their peers and 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 utilizing this label to understand hey how can we adjust the environment to make it accessible you know that's that's really powerful um and maybe we'll live in a label free society one day because the whole world is absolutely accessible um but in the same way that you know i can reach the top shelf of the 
of the shopping aisle and you know somebody who's <laughs> a bit shorter may struggle you know we want to make sure that we've got um we've got that awareness and supports in place because things sometimes will crop up that aren't always easy right yeah we're starting to um come to a close but I'd really love to hear your thoughts as a parent and as a clinician on what you'd hope to see for the future of DLD whether it's in your part of the world where you know you're based or around the world it could be research or clinical work or service delivery what would you hope to see oh Sean it's advocacy <laughs> it's advocacy I kind um, of assumed and, you would say that, but yeah. would you like to expand on that? I would. I mean, there has been so much done in the last five years, um, but we are literally decades behind um, other developmental disorders. Mm. Um, and, and, and we still have so much work to do before somebody has heard the term DLD, before they understand what it means, before they understand what supports they can put in place for for someone like that um and i think that um i think that we can't nobody likes the name okay it's just it's a thing <laughs> um but it's it's the name that we've got yeah um and i think that um effectively when we don't use the label because we're uncomfortable with it we are gatekeeping support um from people that need it. If somebody is struggling um, day in and day out, they deserve to have that need identified and they deserve to have a name for it. Mm. Um, and my child, she doesn't need a label for me to understand her developmental differences and for me to love her unconditionally. Um, but she does need a label in order to be understood in an educational setting and to receive the supports that she needs there. Well, that's the quote of the podcast right there. <laughs> I think it's absolutely true because really without that awareness of DLD, we've got this um, beautiful paper from Jae-hyun Kim here in Australia that was published last year where more than 90% of the population knew about autism, knew about dyslexia, knew about ADHD, but only about 20% of the population knew about DLD, which was actually, in fairness, a lot more than I thought, thought that they would find in that paper. Um, but even within that, what they found was if even if you knew had heard of the label before, doesn't necessarily knew what it meant or what to do about it, um, not just for DLD, but other conditions as well. So really we need to be thinking about um, increasing awareness um, because just like any other neurodevelopmental condition, our children and, and adults with DLD deserve the best. Yeah. Nothing, nothing but the best. And that's why um, we would definitely encourage you to get involved in Developmental Language Disorder Awareness Day this year. Yeah. Um, if you haven't already heard, DLD Awareness Day is coming up on the 20th. Hard to think about that, Erin, that's scary. The 20th of October 2023. And this year's theme is DLD around the world and really starting to look at the fact that um, you know, DLD occurs everywhere around the world and there's lots of different um, projects being done at the moment on, you know, looking at terminology in different countries and different languages and what that looks like, um, but acknowledging that it's not just something that happens um, for one culture, it happens for many, um, and that people with DLD look and sound different all around the world. So building this international community of people with DLD is so important. It's such a lovely way um, to celebrate you know your your um neurodiversity as well um we always we contact our city and they light up our fountains in purple and we go and um we have a late 
dinner, we eat fish and chips in the park and we wait for the sun to come down and the lights to go up. And it's, it's a really, really special um, night for us. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed last year, our um, first face-to-face -face event in many, many years um, where we got together with families under the big bridge that lights up here in Brisbane and we had a picnic in the park and we all just sat and watched, you know, as the, the bridge turned purple and yellow. Um, the same bridge that the year before I very terrifyingly climbed um, <laughs> because a young man with DLD said, if I can, you know, communicate all day long with DLD, you can climb the bridge, even though you're a bit, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of heights, Erin. That's <laughs> it's not my forte. Um, but, you know, it's great about bringing people together and, and having that shared experience and, and often feeling like you're not alone. And I think that that's what I love about um, your contribution to social media and the work that we do is that, you know, we're showing that we can come together and we're better than the sum of our parts. But also let's listen to people with the lived experience, whether it's as family members or um, the people with DLD themselves and thinking, well, what is life, what, what does the future hold for them um, if we all understand and support? Yes. So as we're drawing to a close, um, I've got one more question for you before we sum up. But at the DLD project, we're really trying to focus on self-care. And I say that with a bit of a wry smile because my self-care has been pretty abysmal of late. Um, and finding a little bit of time to breathe in busy days. As a mum and a clinician, what do you do to look after yourself? Yeah, well, um, I think you have to try to be mindful of things and, and to recognise when, um, when, when things are getting tough um, and, and to try to kind of carve out um, some me time. Yeah. Um, I also have a really strong um group of friends many of whom are also parenting um neurodivergent kids and I think that mm -hmm. that community is really important um and I also um I like to splash out I like to buy uh, myself uh, you know books and hair products great <laughs> I love it I am um don't have much hair Erin so <laughs> I won't take advantage of that tip but I am um, I've definitely been getting more involved in reading books lately. I feel like I've um, lost the skill of attending to a book for pleasure. I'm very good at reading journal articles now yes. and, and textbooks and um, things that will uh, achieve a goal. Um, but my goodness, I used to devour books until I was in my mid to late 20s. And then in the last decade or so, I think I've lost the skill to sit and, <laughs> sit and attend to a book. Um, because I tend to fall asleep, um, <laughs> which is what happened last night. I fell asleep and now I've got a kink in my shoulder from sleeping a bit funny on it. Um, but it's, you know, it's really nice to actually stop sometimes and think, well, actually, you can only pour from a full cup or a mostly full cup. And yeah. often for our parents who are listening in, you know, cups are half empty or, or very empty. So it makes it really tricky to say, hey, I can do the best thing for my young person, um, the person in my life that I love when actually I'm not taking very good care of myself. So hopefully people will have a few ideas, take a minute to step back. Just to recap um, today's podcast, what would be the key points you'd like listeners to take away from our chat? Yeah. Maybe um, give us three points. Three? Oh, you, you want more? <laughs> Go for that. it. Double <laughs> that. Give me your six points. Whatever you like, Erin, the floor is yours. All right. Um, DLD 
is a neurodivergence. We need to step away from parent blame and shame language and beliefs. Um, you don't treat the disorder, you treat the functional impact. Mm -hmm. If you do nothing else for a child with DLD, support their self-awareness and self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, labels are supportive of finding community and having your needs met. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I wanted to say was, um, it's hard to tell a personal story. And I really, really wanted to thank and acknowledge the people who have done that before, before me. Mm -hmm. um, there are just some really, some giants in the area of, of DLD. Um, Sophie, Shelby, Lily, Damien, Robert, Ozzy, Amelia, um, Carl, Parker, Juliana, Sandra. Um, and I know that there are many, many more children um, who have, um, and adults and people, people, <laughs> I'm trying to really stop myself from saying children with DLD, but because it is across the lifespan, I'm, I'm trying to shift my language to people with DLD, but it is such a gift to have their advocacy and to have their voice. Um, and it, it makes this, um, makes sharing our story so much easier. I mean, thank you so much for sharing your story. One of the things that Erin and I discussed at the very beginning of planning for today was, you know, one day our little ones are big ones and they and they hear what we've said. And we know that even when it comes to writing reports, you know, I'm very conscious when I write a report that eventually that person might read that report about themselves. And I want them to feel that they had somebody who had their back. Um, and it's so amazing that we've got parents like you who um, are happy to share your story because it's been a little while since we've had a parent on the podcast and I really um, have enjoyed speaking with our adult friends with DLD and getting their perspective but your perspective's so unique as well um, as a parent of a child with DLD and as a clinician I thought it was too good an opportunity to miss so thank you so much for your time oh, thanks for having me we genuinely appreciate it and maybe you'll get to listen to yourself on the podcast now <laughs> maybe Thanks so much for your time, Erin. It's lovely. Being it's been lovely talking to you and we'll um, catch everybody soon. Thank you, Erin, for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast. When we came up with the idea to have a podcast, one of the main things we wanted to do was elevate the voices of people with DLD and their families. Because the term DLD has only been around you know, since 2016, we are still just finding those emerging voices. So it's really important uh, to hear Erin talk today on behalf of her family. Um, one of the key quotes for me was, labels are supportive of finding community and having your needs met. So that's a bit more food for thought around the whole label, no label conversation that's happening globally at the moment. People with DLD and their families seem very much in favor of a label and its benefits. And lastly, a little bit of a plug for our online training. You might not realize that the DLD project is a social enterprise. We're completely funded through the sales of our online training. We get no other government or private funding support. So we would love your help. If you would like to grow your skills in the DLD space, head to thedldproject.com. We've got on-demand and live workshops coming up for the next few months, and we'd love to have you join us. Thank you so much for helping us create a world where people with DLD are recognized, understood, and empowered to live their best life.